This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. What if I told you that one of the most important events in the history of Reformed theology and in the history of the Reformed churches almost didn't happen? That, indeed, theologically indifferent politicians and well-connected critics of the Reformed Confession almost persuaded those authorities to hold a synod not to uphold Reformed theology and piety and practice, but to overturn it. What if I told you that a major European power bankrupted itself not one time, not two times, but three times in the space of a few decades in its attempt to wipe out the Reformation in the Netherlands? What if I told you that the event took place in the midst of an 80 years war that ended only in 1648? And what if I told you that a synod helped to save a nation? Would you believe me if I told you those things? Well, they're all true. And of course, I'm talking about the Synod of Dort, a meeting of Reformed pastors and others from across Europe, the Netherlands, and the British Isles in the city of Dortrecht in the Netherlands from November 1618 to May 1619. This is the synod that gave us the canons of Dort and more than that. And Bob Gottfried joins us to walk us through the Synod of Dort, how it happened, why it happened, and why you should care. Bob is Professor Emeritus of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California, where he has taught church history since its beginning in 1980 and where he served as president for 24 years. He's singularly well qualified to talk to us about the Synod of Dort since he did his doctoral research at Stanford University on Dort and on some of its conclusions. He remains one of the world's leading experts on the Synod and is currently writing a commentary on the canons of Dort. He's author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, really one of the better biographies of Calvin, if you're looking for one, and also Learning to Love the Psalms. These and other faculty titles are available through... The bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Great to be with you, Scott. Normally, when you introduce me in these terms, you say I was at the Synod of Dort, <laughs> which is actually not true, but I'm delighted to be here to talk with you about the Synod. Well, Bob wrote his doctoral dissertation, not at Dort, but on Dort, but unfortunately, he did it on stone, and so <laughs> they haven't been able to get it into paper. But you are going to publish your scholarship on the Synod of Dort, right? How is that coming? It's uh, all set to be out in March Ligonier is publishing it through its publishing arm, Reformation Trust, and uh, I'm excited. I already have the final proofs to read, so it's chugging right along. Fantastic. Well, we will have you back to talk specifically about that commentary, but for now we want to talk about the Synod and about what it concluded and uh, what it confessed. For example, we hear a lot about the doctrines of grace, is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, and about tulips but we don't always hear a lot about the Synod of Dort. So why should anyone bother remembering a 400-year-old ecclesiastical assembly? After all, who remembers what our synods and general assemblies did last spring? Well, that's true. I actually begin my book. The opening sentence of my book is, most meetings of church assemblies are not significant or memorable. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so Great minds think alike. Great yes. minds think alike. For people interested in Reformed theology or acquainted with Reformed theology, they very likely have heard the phrase, the five points of Calvinism. And that phrase really goes back to the time of the Synod of Dort. It's 
it's really from the Synod of Dort that the five points of Calvinism, as we usually discuss them today, were formulated. And I always want to hurry to say Calvinism does not have five points. It was Arminianism that had five points. That's why the Synod talked about five points. The five points of Arminianism were the five points that Arminianism dissented from well-received Calvinist orthodoxy at the time. And so, really, we have the five Calvinist answers to the five errors of Arminianism is the best way to talk about it. But it's a little long as a way of talking about it, so it's not surprising people talk about the five points of Calvinism. It's true. I mean, it's a little handier to talk about TULIP. Uh, the five points, because we were responding to criticism. Right. And it's important to bear in mind that TULIP is an entirely English formulation. It doesn't work in Latin or in Dutch, so one shouldn't assume that anyone at the Synod talked about TULIP. Well, that's right. That's a really important point, and the listener might not know that. Everyone knows TULIP, but in fact, if you look at the canons as Synod issued them, that's not even the order, is it? Can no, you, so, no, the order is Ultip, Ultip, right? Which is slightly less memorable and apparently doesn't bloom in the spring. <laughs> but nonetheless, Ultip is the actual order in which the Synod spoke. So Synod actually first talked about unconditional election, right? And then limited atonement was the second thing, right? And then irresistible grace, actually. Total depravity. Then, sorry, it's then total depravity. That's the one that you live out, so you'd think <laughs> you would remember that one. Yes, well, I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ. Um, Amen. All right, so total depravity, irresistible grace, and then perseverance of the saints. Right. Old tip. And where did TULIP come from? I have no idea. You mean uh, as an English yeah, formula? Yeah, I really uh, don't know. Actually, I do, and I have this little quotation from our mutual friend Richard Muller, who says, quoting now, as far as we know, both the acrostic, that would be T. U-L-I-P, TULIP, and the associated usage, five points of Calvinism, are of Anglo-American origin and do not date back before the 19th century. And other scholars have reached the same conclusion. So this is a really a very modern way of thinking about the canons and what they concluded. And it is problematic, it seems to me, because the notion then subtly gets communicated that somehow Calvinism is summarized in these five points, which is not true at all. Calvinism is summarized in the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's the fullness of Calvinism. And then alternatively, if we don't think of the five points as the fullness of Calvinism, then they can be regarded as sort of a reform peculiarity, the sort of icing on the evangelical cake. And that's not right either. And then you have the anomaly of people saying, I'm a four-point Calvinist or something. Right. Right. So you've reduced the Reformed faith to five points, and then you've subtracted one. <laughs> and so now we're really talking about something completely different in significant ways. Right. And it can be a moderately helpful theological shorthand if you really know what you're talking about. But the problem is, I think it easily communicates notions about being Reformed that aren't accurate at all. We could even raise questions about the whole nomenclature Calvinism, right? I mean, Calvinism is not the be-all and end-all of the Reformed faith. Calvin was an important voice in the churches in the 16th century, 17th century, and very influential. But we don't confess things because Calvin said them. We confess things in the Heidelberg, the Belgic, the Canons, and the Westminster standards because we think that's what the Word of God says. And we agree with Calvin on some things, but we also, over the years, have said, well, maybe we could say things a little differently than Calvin. Right. And 
Calvin certainly would never, I think, have approved of Reformed people calling themselves Calvinists. He didn't want people following him. And we also sometimes forget that the word Reformed is sort of an abbreviation of Reformed according to the Word of God. That's who we really are, people who pursued the purification and renewal of our theology by returning to the Word of God at the time of the Reformation. In fact, isn't it true that Calvinism is not an adjective or a noun or a name that we gave ourselves? It was something that was given to us, right? It was kind of an epithet, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's true of Lutheranism, too. Luther didn't want to be known as a Lutheran. He wanted to be known as an evangelical, as a follower of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. He was explicit about that, right? He said, uh, who am I that people should call themselves by my name, right? I'm a bag of maggots, he called himself. Did I die for anyone? I think he said, no, I didn't do anything. I was sitting here in Wittenberg drinking beer with Philip and Amsdorf. I didn't do anything. Whatever happened in the Reformation, that was God's doing. Not The Word did it. The Word did it. The Word did it. Yeah. That's right. So there's lots of shorthanding going on around here that can then be shorthanded again. <laughs> and so pretty soon we get pretty far removed from what's really going on, don't right. we? Right. Exactly. I've named my book slightly strongly, perhaps, saving the Reformation. Oh, I like Because that. my contention is the Synod of Dort is not just in the business of tinkering and refining peripheral points. When the Synod talks about irresistible grace and unconditional election, it's really preserving this Reformation's teaching of sola gratia. It's by grace alone that we're saved. And uh, it was clear that the Arminians, certainly by the time of the Synod of Dort, were not really teaching any kind of sola gratia. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That is a really important point, isn't it? And it can be lost. And so let's back up because you've used this adjective or this noun, Arminians. What is an Arminian and why do people use that term? Why do people call themselves Arminians? Why do you refer to Arminians? Well, that's a great question. And it is interesting that at the Synod of Dort, people being evaluated and their theology being evaluated were not called Arminians. They were called Remonstrants because the year after the death of Jacob Arminius, some of his friends and followers lodged a remonstrance or a petition with the government asking for toleration. And this became known in history as the Remonstrance of 1610. And so thereafter, these people in the Netherlands in the debate were called the Remonstrants. And this is hard to sort out when you hear it orally in your ear. Yes, yes. One word ends with A-N-C-E, and that's a thing, that's a document, that's a right. complaint. Right. And the other one is A-N-T-S, and those are the people making the complaint. Right, right. And since remonstrance as a noun is not really well known in English, it's not surprising that in English in particular, we refer to these people as Arminians. They didn't all strictly follow Arminius and his teaching, but they followed in the train of the objection to Calvinist orthodoxy that he began. He opened a can of worms and they wormed in different ways. <laughs> okay, so that raises the question, you know, was Arminius an Arminian? Because the document that they produced, the complaint, the remonstrance, was published and then there were discussions held right after Arminius's death. So there wasn't right. a long time lapse. Right. And what you see is that Arminius himself tried to sound as thoroughly reformed as he could, although he knew he was potentially in some trouble, 
remarkably for a professor in the 16th, early 17th century, he published not a word during his own lifetime. And I think he did that so there wouldn't be hard evidence for people to come after him. Nonetheless, he tried to express himself most of the time in pretty Calvinist-sounding language. And the Remonstrance of 1610 also tries to do that same thing, to sound biblical and not too radical. But then if you compare that then with the rejection of errors at the Synod of Dort some nine years later, you can see how much the Arminians have radicalized. And of course, the contemporary Calvinists in the 17th century would have said, well, of course, their theology was unstable, and it's not surprising that it would unwind the way it did in a more and more semi-Pelagian direction. But even in the Remonstrance itself from 1610, there are pretty significant clues that they have come to conclusions that were quite different from the Reformed and, as you indicate, really expressed dissatisfaction with some basic Protestant ideas. Absolutely. What I was thinking of was in their statement in the Remonstrance on total depravity. Yeah. Taken by itself, it still sounds like total depravity. But by the time you get to the rejection of errors at the Synod of Dort, they're clearly not teaching total depravity anymore. So there's an area where there was real radicalization. But you're absolutely right. What they say about election and atonement are already seriously deviant from Calvinist orthodoxy. And especially, perhaps, or as much on perseverance, right? It says, well, you know, we don't really know quite what we think. And of course, they did know what they thought. Well, yeah. I mean, that's really shocking. Maybe real believers can fall away, but we're, we're, we're not sure. And if you go back and look, and I just finished a really interesting book by a couple of really excellent Arminian scholars in which they conclude, yes, in fact, read in totality, Arminius did say that you can actually be a true, regenerated, elect believer and yet fall away because you didn't cooperate sufficiently with grace. And so if Arminius had reached that conclusion, how much more likely is it that the Remonstrants had also reached that conclusion? Well, one of the things I've been working on a little bit is sort of looking at the canons of Dort, not just from the angle of what was their theology and what kind of piety of the Christian life did they promote, both of which are the most important questions. But as a sort of tertiary question, it's interesting to ask, what kind of strategy was at work here in the language people chose? And I think in the Remonstrance of 1610, the Arminians had really made a very clear strategic decision about perseverance, because I think for lots of Calvinists in the pew, the doctrine of perseverance was a treasure that they wanted to hold on to. So the Arminians knew that this was a strategic problem for them to deny perseverance. And so they say, we just need more time to study this. Well, that's completely disingenuous. Perseverance had been a clear reform doctrine for decades and decades. And for them to claim as ministers and theologians, they hadn't really thought about it. They hadn't really studied it. It's completely disingenuous. And when you say clear reform doctrine, I mean, this was something that we had inherited from Martin Luther. So this wasn't new. And long before Luther, there were Augustinian theologians who had addressed this in the 15th century and through the Middle Ages and the 9th century, going back to Augustine himself. So a lot of what the Synod did wasn't really distinctively reformed. Some of it was, but some of it was just good old-fashioned Augustinian theology, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, you had a wonderful introduction to this, which showed the importance of Dort. It didn't necessarily show why anyone should be interested in it, but um, (laughs) (laughs) Dort is another of the great battles in the history of the church for 
grace. You know, you can see it in Paul against the Judaizers. You can see it in Augustine against Pelagius. You can see it in Luther against Erasmus. And this is another of those really focal moments. And what is particularly nice about the Synod of Dort, seems to me, is that whereas to really get what Augustine said to Pelagius, you have to do a lot of reading in Augustine. But the Synod really produces one of the splendid, brief, accessible statements about what's at stake here and uh, what the biblical truth is here. It's a really splendid gift to the church. Let's back up even more and let's think about Jacob Arminius, because he is the fellow that really stimulates this response and then he develops a following. Walk us through who he was and why he became so controversial. Well, one of the things I do in my book is I have an appendix calling for a new look at Arminius, because since the mid-1970s in English, the dominant biography of Arminius, which in some ways is a very good biography by Carl Bangs, but it's a very sympathetic biography of Arminius. And Arminius comes across as this nice, well-meaning guy who's attacked by vicious Calvinists. And of course, the victim narrative is very important for Arminius. yes. All of us who've known Calvinists are not surprised that someone would accuse us of being mean-spirited, nasty, and attacking a fellow when he's down. But in this one instance, (laughs) I don't think it's actually true. We're passionate about the gospel and divine sovereignty and the glory of God. And sometimes we can get a little carried away. Yeah, yeah, we are sinners after all. Uh, And uh, what I think we need to see in the life of Arminius is a very bright, clever, ambitious— man. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. Very well educated. Well educated at the gift of Reformed people. Yeah. It was Reformed people that paid for his education all the way along and encouraged him. His family had suffered considerably and then were wiped out by the Spanish in 1575-76? Yeah, his father died fighting for the Dutch Republic, and then the family was impoverished. And seeing his talent, the Reform people paid for him to go to university, and then the church paid for him to go to do graduate work in Geneva and in Basel. And from Geneva, he traveled all over the place, didn't he? And he kind of used Geneva as a base, and he got to meet all kinds of important scholars and study with a little bit. As people did, he made study trips. We don't do that so much anymore. We have a junior year abroad or a summer abroad, something like that. But it was common for a student to study at multiple places and then come home and then sort of take your degree from one place. Right. That's exactly right. But what you discover when you look at his biography is that while in most places where he found himself, most of the time he got along and was well-regarded, everywhere where he went, he got into some trouble at some point. So the notion that he's always a victim being attacked is not true. He's a provocateur at a number of places, criticizing received convictions that most people held. Now you can say, well, that doesn't make him bad. I'm not arguing he's worse than anybody else, but he's not always the victim. He's not always being attacked. He often initiates the controversies in which he finds himself. And that was true in Geneva, became true in Amsterdam, became true later at Leiden when he was a professor. You believe, but how did you come to faith? Did God elect you because he saw that you would believe? Did Christ die to make salvation available to those who do their part? Can a true believer fall away and be lost? These are just some of the questions that the Reformed churches from across Europe and the British Isles gathered to resolve at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619. 
This year is the 400th anniversary of that synod, and we want you to join us on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, for our annual conference, Friday and Saturday, January 18th and 19th, 2019. Remembering the Canons. That's January 18 and 19, 2019. The conference features talks by W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, Charles Telfer, and your host, R. Scott Clark. Register now by calling toll-free 888-480-8474, 888-480-8474, or online at wscal.edu, wscal.edu. Remembering the Canons in beautiful Escondido, California, January 18 and 19, 2019, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss out. Register now. wscal.edu, 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary California for Christ his gospel and his church so when he graduates from Geneva and uh, is ready to be ordained and one of the things that interests me and that I haven't been able to track down fully yet was his time in Padua you and I've talked about that it's an interesting sojourn in Italy and then sort of delaying his return to Amsterdam and finally he comes back to Amsterdam and sort of does an internship and then is ordained in 1588 right it's difficult to reconstruct with precision what's going on in 87 and 88. The historical record is not complete. And there's a curious delay between his examination and his ordination in Amsterdam, which some contemporaries later argued showed that there was concern in the church about his theology. We don't have any hard evidence of that, but the delay was unusual. So even there, you see a little question mark being raised. And yet he did get letters of approval from more than one leading scholar, including Theodore Beza, right? He got a couple of letters of recommendation from Beza that supported his ordination. And his student disputation at Geneva was perfectly orthodox. There were really no clues there. But right away, when he begins preaching, almost immediately, he becomes a controversial figure in Amsterdam. And uh, he starts preaching through Romans. So that's good. He's preaching through Scripture the way Reformed ministers do. And Romans is always a good place through which to preach. But when he gets particularly to 7 and 9, those sermons become hotly controversial. Right. And again, they're not published. There don't seem to be any extant recordings. And (laughs) that's a joke. Um, And so in reacting to what he preached— Now, he may have had a manuscript, and maybe the church authorities were able to review that manuscript, but otherwise you're left to rumors, you know, and we all know people hear sermons and hear different things. And in any case, both on Romans 7 and Romans 9, there arose controversy, there was examination, and in the end of the day, once again, the Reformed people, instead of savaging him, exonerated him. That's important because, again, the Armenian self-identity and the narrative that is often told or the narrative that accompanies Arminius and Remonstrance or the Armenian movement and so forth is frequently that Arminius and his followers were victims. And remarkably, that self-identity pervades a lot of even the scholarly literature about right. Arminius and the right. movement. And then after 15 years of ministry in Amsterdam, because of two deaths on the theological faculty in Leiden, he's 
appointed to teach as a professor at Leiden. There are only three professors of theology in the theology faculty there. So when we say university, you mustn't think UCLA, Michigan, no. Ohio State, Nebraska. You're not thinking of big places, or even Stanford, right? You're thinking of really a very small... A few hundred students at most. Yeah, you're really thinking of a small Christian college with a small Bible department, right, with right. three faculty. And can you say who the faculty were who died? Yes. Well, please do, because they're actually kind of important people. Franciscus Unius yeah. was the senior member who was a very famous theologian of his day and highly regarded. His volume on true theology is now in English, and you can read it for yourself. I mean, you could read it, but the listener can read it. Is it available in the bookstore? It is available in the bookstore, and I'm a big fan. I think everyone should read that. Plus, there's a long autobiography by Unius. And also, in the works of Arminius now, is published his correspondence with Unius, where, again, Unius shows himself to be really a very reasonable and patient correspondent, and Arminius is just sort of the bulldog, keeps attacking the great man until the great man finally says, you know, we've really gone at this enough. You're not listening to me. <laughs> and then the other faculty member was? Lucius Tralcadius Sr. Yeah, who ended up getting replaced by his son. Right, which is a very Dutch Reformed thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a family business. So Arminius gets this position. So he's such a victim that he gets appointed to the theology faculty. Well, in fairness, he is appointed by the trustees of the university who are more connected to moderate commercial interests. And so some of the ministers do object to the appointment. And in light of that tension, the trustees ask Gomaris, Franciscus Gomaris, the surviving member of the faculty, to interview Arminius. Gomaris was highly regarded as an Orthodox theologian. His reputation has often been savaged by the Arminians as being fiery, but that's overstated. He was an evil superlapsarian. I mean, that's the way he's portrayed. That's right. But again, what is not so often reported is that having had an interview with Arminius, he declares himself satisfied with Arminius's orthodoxy and supports the appointment of Arminius to the theological faculty. Just for fun, who's the first minister to raise the alarm about Arminius in Amsterdam? Plonkius? It was Petrus Plonkius. You are so surprised that I knew that. You thought at my extreme <laughs> advanced age, even if I had once known, I would surely have forgotten. And why should anybody know about Petrus Plonkius? I don't know. He did something on geography, didn't he? Yeah, he was actually quite the scholar, and he is considered the father of Dutch Reform missions. Oh, okay. So he, he wasn't just a bulldog for orthodoxy. He was actually concerned about getting the gospel to the lost and quite the sponsor. Of so he wasn't really a Calvinist at all. <laughs> Dr. Godfrey kids, he kids. Because, <laughs> you have to be able to see my smile to yes, really yes. understand. Yes. We don't take ourselves seriously, just our doctrine, our theology, and our piety, and our practice. So Arminius was a controversial figure, gets this university appointment partly at the behest or, well, because of the Board of Governors, Board of Directors, and behind that is some influence by people who we might call more moderate, people with Erasmian sympathies who think, you know, we should just get along and, you know, we don't have to be so insistent on these things. And then he's able to satisfy Gomaris, who's something of a well-regarded dog. I mean, yeah, uh, again, we don't know what went on in that conversation. But since this takes place in 1603 and Arminius is dead in six years, we're not talking about a long time for Arminius's theology to change. So we're left either with Gomaris didn't ask the right questions or Arminius didn't tell 
truthful answers or they just, you know, <laughs> talked about the weather. I mean, there are a limited number of options to try to understand how Arminius's theology could have been so misunderstood by Gomarus in 1603. And there were actually a couple of conferences and they ended up having a conference later on. There was a conference in The Hague. Well, yeah. What happens is for about a year or two, things go along fairly peaceably, but then student rumors begin to circulate. About reading assignments. About reading assignments. He's not assigning Reformed authors anymore. He's assigning Roman Catholic authors and Socinian authors. And so there are serious questions about what's going on in the theology faculty. Right. And he denies that. And remonstrants still deny that he was assigning deviant books. Right. But again, the actual hard evidence available to scholars is very limited. We have his library. We know what his library was. Right. And we do have one or two student complaints, which can't, I think, be entirely dismissed since they were there. On the other hand, student evaluations are not infallible. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> I wish the listener could see the former president's face, but a student apprehensions are certainly not infallible. But by 1608, things had become so tense that, yeah, there's a demand from the government that Arminius write up his views. And this is known to history as the Declaration of Sentiments. Which he did not in Latin write, but in Dutch for the people. And again, it wasn't published in his own lifetime, but he's dead within a year. So TB or not TB, right? That is consumption? You don't know that old rhyme? No. Okay. No. <laughs> yeah, well, lots of people died of TB, and, and Arminius dies at a fairly young age. And yeah, he's about 50. Exactly. And and the— um, Looks young to you, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> exactly. So a lot of unresolved questions and uncertainties, but he was persuasive, developed a following, and his followers published then the Remonstrance, right, a series of complaints, five statements. Mm-hmm. To which then the Orthodox responded with the counter-remonstrance, which is seven statements. Right. And if you read the contra-remonstrance, it's actually very similar in some respects to what we know as the canons of the Synod of Dort. And canons, by the way, dear listener, has one N. Right. Derived from the Greek meaning rules. So these Rule. are the rules of Dort relative to sound theology. Yeah, not things from which you fire cannonballs. And one of the most interesting things about the contra-remonstrance is that either the first or the second thing they affirmed against the remonstrance was the free offer of the gospel. Mm. Isn't that striking? Because you wouldn't think that a bunch of narrow-minded, uh, hyper-Orthodox Calvinists would be, you know, one of the first things out of their mouth is, hey, we want the gospel to go to everyone, everywhere, to be preached freely and promiscuously. That's right. And that's reiterated in the canons. And uh, of course, as I say, I've been thinking about some of the strategies here, and clearly Clearly, part of the strategy of the Calvinists was to refute openly the misrepresentations. But in the canons, that article on the gospel being preached promiscuously, Ben goes on to say, wherever the Lord in his providence sends it, which is a reminder to everybody that, in point of fact, God in his providence has not sent the gospel everywhere. So the universalist claims of Arminius are really undermined by the providential care of God for his church in history. It's a subtle point being made there, but I think it's kind of interesting to note. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. As we start to bring this to a close, one of the objections that people sometimes make to the Synod and the Canons and the whole controversy is that they misunderstood each other. Is it the case that Arminius' Orthodox critics didn't understand him and, and didn't understand the remonstrant? No. 
Can you flesh that out a little no, bit? No, that's just, just no, just no. Um, it doesn't really account fairly, does it, for the amount of work put in by the people who initially encountered Arminianism, right? Yeah, I think when you look at Arminius, I think, you know, the recent sympathetic scholars of Arminius have argued that what really motivated him was a passion for the goodness of God, not for the freedom of man, and that he felt that supralapsarianism could not avoid making God the author of sin. But also infralapsarianism, and he didn't have time for either one of them. Right, but the writings that are extant, not published in his own lifetime, but survived him and were published later, primarily focus on attacking supralapsarianism. But that, too, is a strategy the Arminians pursued. They wanted to try to set supralapsarian Calvinists against infralapsarian Calvinists, and they never succeeded at that. The infralapsarians and the supralapsarians always could get along, always respected one another, always embraced one another as a holding to views tolerable within the church. So Arminius is attacking the doctrine of election at a fundamental point. Because he made it conditional, right? So whether you're supra or infra, and this is about the logical order of the decrees, not about time, but it's about how we think about, in a sense, God went at things. Did he consider humans as potentially created and then decide as potential created that some are going to be elect, some are going to be reprobated, and then the fall, and then salvation? Or did he think of us as created and fallen and then out of fallen, the fallen mass of humanity to elect some to salvation and to allow the fallen mass, the rest, to remain in their sins? And so the first is supra, the second is infra. That's a really short <laughs> summary of it. And Arminius tried to skip the whole thing and say God, in a sense, looks down the core of history and has determined to elect a class of people, whoever it is that believes, and they're elected on the basis of their foreseen faith. And even, for example, in his doctrine of justification said that God imputes your faith to you for righteousness. Right which Arminian defenders sort of pass over as not a big deal, but that would actually be a really big deal if you're a confessional Protestant. Right. And you see how, even though you might say that Arminius is a very conservative Arminian in the sense of being as close to Calvinism as you can get and be an Arminian, uh, nonetheless, the whole system of Protestant theology is basically unraveling in what he's doing. So when they gathered at Sinden, and we'll close with this, and your thesis is that they met right, 1618, 1619, in an armory in Dortrecht, which is not exactly an entirely sympathetic city for the Orthodox. It's a fairly mixed city in some respects. I've always thought that was interesting that that was the place they chose to hold I, it. I think maybe because several earlier national synods had been held there, and I think it was sort of to try to make the point that this synod is part of the noble Dutch history and the noble reformation of the church. I think that's part of what's operating there. So they gathered to save the Reformation. So what was it fundamentally that Arminius and his followers were saying that was bringing the Reformation into jeopardy? Well, it's that very basic point. Is our religion God-centered or man-centered? The Arminian theology basically ends up saying something like, even though they'll squeal about this, something like, <laughs> God's done all he can do. It's now up to you. Yeah. At some point, you have to do your part. The decisive part. And that's important because what was it that the medievals had said before Luther? Most of them would say, God came to us in grace and God has taken the first step. They say that at Trent, but the decisive moment or the decisive act is your free choice to cooperate with that. 
Right. When I used to be able to teach medieval history here before you stole it from me, <laughs> I, I used to say the medieval church drips grace at every pore. Yeah. Grace is available, 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 but it's up to you whether it becomes actual and effective. Is grace that is conditional? Is that really grace? I don't think so. I think in the end of the day, the decisive thing becomes your action, not God's action. However minimal. I mean, you see that with Erasmus, don't you? Erasmus really wants to make salvation 99.9% grace. But the minute you have the 0.1%, that's the decisive percent. And what about your assurance? Under Arminius' system, what is your only comfort in life and in death? We know what the Heidelberg says, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, who right, did things for me, died for me, came for right. me, saved right. me, is preserving me. Not a hair right. could fall from my head. So right. that's the Reformed Confession. How does Arminius answer that question? What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I've accepted the grace of God. I mean, that has to be— And that I'm cooperating. Yes. And if I— See, I don't I, think Arminius wanted to say that, but I don't see how he avoids it. And so long as I continue to cooperate, everything will be well. But if I fail to continue to cooperate, then I could fall away from the grace which was mine, and then I lost it. Absolutely. And maybe I'll come back. Probably I'll come back, but I might not come back. Exactly. And so— the very focus of Christian living, as well as Christian theology, is on what I'm doing. Now, there's an appropriate place to talk about what I'm doing, but not in terms of what's decisive for salvation. So we really began to lose Christ for me, didn't we, under Arminianism leading yeah. up to Dort. So yeah. that when those delegates came, they would have come from France, except the crown would not allow Dumoulin and others to come. Mm -hmm. uh, they came from— Parts of Germany. Parts of Germany, the Palatinate and other places. And they came from across the Netherlands. Yes, and they came from Switzerland. And Switzerland. German-speaking and Geneva, French-speaking, and from Britain. And from Britain. So this is a really international gathering. It's the most international gathering as an actual synod functioning with authority over the churches that the Reformed have ever had. And we're going to be gathering to talk about this January 18 and 19 on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, for our annual faculty conference, Remembering the Canons. And you're going to be speaking at this conference. If I can remember to be there. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> we will assign someone to come and get you. Do you know what you're talking about? I'm talking about the Synod of Dort. I'm talking about the history that leads up to um, okay. the work so, of the Synod. Dear listener, if you want to know more about what led up to the Synod of Dort and why it's so important, then you need to join us on campus for the 2019 Annual Conference, January 18 and 19, here on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, in beautiful Escondido in January, which during that part of January is almost always lovely. We can typically expect temperatures in the 70s or 80s. So all you folks from Michigan, head west <laughs> and south, and we'll see you here on campus. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.